A scrapbook of sound. An elite ninja. That's the way it was, and that's the way it is. Bring in more ninja feet and kids. The big sick pussy job. Welcome to another episode of the Ninja Tune Podcast. As ever, I'm Dexter and I'll be your host. And this week I am joined by the man, the legend, the Ninja Tune grandee, James Braddle, who's better known as Funky Porcini. Uh, we're going to be having a chat about his new album on and also a more general talk about his kind of life story. He's a very interesting and colourful fellow. We're going to run through some of his favourite tunes and following that we're going to have a look through some of the forthcoming Ninja Tune releases. So please stay tuned and enjoy. Thanks very much for joining me for having a chat on another Ninja Tune podcast. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. So I wanted to largely um, focus on the new record on, but also yep. a chance to get to know you as an artist as it's for the label and, yep. and a bit about kind of your relationship with Ninja as well. So um, first on the new record, it's been a while since the previous record. Yes, it has I believe. Been, it's been quite a long time. So uh, what have you been doing for the last seven years? Has it been spent making the record entirely or has it been a variety of things? No, it's been a variety of things. Um, quite a few things have happened. I mean, since the digitisation of music, it's much more difficult for me to make a living out of making music. So I have to sort of do other more mundane and real things sometimes. Right. Which can be both a drag and a pleasure at the same time and also I've had two children so that's taken up quite a lot of time now I'm much keener to get back into making more things um, which is good for me but I mean it's sort of it was quite odd after making Fast Asleep which the all the films got premiered at the NFT in the, on the South Bank and it seemed like a great sort of moment of fantasticness and I thought, uh, I thought that life would get much easier after that, but it didn't. It got much more difficult, which is, you know, always the way things happen. They, they don't happen the way you think they're going to happen. And so it put me off a little bit, really, making things, because I'd spent an enormous amount of effort and time and money making Fast Asleep, which didn't really sort of come back in any kind of yeah. sort of financial sort of... Um, in a, in a financial way that would allow me to sit down for six months to work on something else. Yes. So all of the, the things that I was making were much more sporadic and I'd have less time to do them in. I'd have more interruptions in the house, etc, etc. Et so it's been, it's taken a bit longer. It's an incredibly rich record that you've come out with. Obviously there, there was still some kind of creative yearning in yeah, no, I really like making music. I mean, I really enjoy making music, and it's, I have to do it, I think, because it's, I'd get really bored with myself if I didn't. 
in the, in the intervening time, did, were, were you making these tracks with a view to bring them together as an album at the end, or was it were there, was it in isolation and you leave it for six months and then go and do something else? Or? No, I, I, I try and... Um, well, first of all, I moved into a house and I built myself this wonderful studio, okay? Absolutely gorgeous. I converted this old garage into this gorgeous studio with a huge window and I made it all myself, made the sash window and sort of lovely, you know, wooden floor. Just a really nice room to be in. Not like a sort of cavernous underground sound studio, but just a really nice room. And I knew that as soon as I finished busting my guts making this thing that I'd most probably have a period of complete sort of uh, stagnation of creativity <laughs> and sure enough you know it did happen a bit and so I'd sit in this lovely room going well what am I going to do now but slowly I mean I did keep making things so what I did was I sort of made all this work then Ninja Tune decided that they were going to take sort of about I don't know half of them mm-hmm. and turn them in turn that into this into the record on so I took the others and self-released an album on Bandcamp, which is Plod, and it's all from the it's all the same sort of stable of work, yeah. And it's so it's um, but there isn't really a concept behind it as there has been in other bits of thing that I'm making because it's been stretched over a long period of time. The fact that, that there isn't kind of this concept album yeah. to it, um, it means it's a really, for me, it's a really rich record with, you know, with actually with a lot of variety there. Yeah. Well, I was very keen to get away from this whole style element of music, and I was in, I was concentrating much more on playing things and right. trying to play them fluently, so not doing very much editing. So, for example, there's a track, "The Magic Hands of Fernando Del Rey," and that was. Me playing a keyboard, but I mean, doing all the uh, xylophone sort of turnover. But I was, it, and that really worked, you know, it was like one take, and which I've repeated, I mean, I have repeated the take through the track, so to speak, but, and so I sort of felt like I was learning more yeah. doing it, which was good for me, using less samples, playing much more, and try, just trying to be sort of sensitive with it, I suppose, you know. sounds of your music, yeah. do, do you consider your, that you've got a style, that there is a funky Puccini sound? Yeah, I think there is, because it's me, and um, so I, and people say there is, you know, to me, they say that, that there is, oh, that sounds very funky Puccini, did you make that? And I go, no, I didn't, but, you know, <laughs> when it's some really successful record, yeah. but it's like, did you make that, James? No, really weird. Um, no, but there is, yeah, there is a, there is a, there's definitely a funky Porcini sound, and I think it's, I enjoy, I enjoy making things quite rich and lush, and I think that my attitude towards music is more, because it's just me in a studio, my attitude is more like a sort of, like painting or doing other, some other solo um, type of, oh, sort of um, creation. Yeah. So it's more like no, there's very little relying on other people. I mean, every now and then somebody else comes, somebody comes in and might play something, but I'm at least on a piece of music, and that's great. But it's sort of, you know, I do. It all seems to be a sort of. Um, I want to immerse myself mm-hmm. 
in the sound. Does your music feel very personal or is it more audience based? You make it for, with an audience in mind? No, I don't, make it for, I, I don't make it with an audience in mind. I make it to amuse and entertain myself first, right. I, I have to say. And then sometimes when you're working on something and you think this is good, you know, if I like it, then I think other people will yeah. most probably like it as well, if I like it. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe not. <laughs> and I mean, I remember when I made the first Funky Portuguese record, I made with Headphone Sex, and I'd just come back from, I was living in Italy, and I'd come back to England, had no money, I'd set up some gear in a front room in my parents' house, and sort of sat down and made that record. I didn't think anybody would like it. You know, so it was a, it was a big shock, actually, right. that other people did seem to like it. And had it you was very to, pleasing. It must have been. Yeah. So, <laughs> so had, you kind of, had you already kind of come to terms with that? Were you like, well, I've made this, and no... There's not for anybody. But then when the whole sort of, the whole, when everybody seemed to like it, and then I was sort of, you know, pushed. I, I, I'm not a DJ, but that was what, I couldn't tour with my music because it's made by me over a length of time. And I'm not going to stand on the stage and do fake, if you see what I mean. I, yeah. find, I find that abhorrent. The idea that you take a dat in, you sort of shove it in, press a button, and then you sort of pretend to fiddle with knobs. I, I just find it, I, I'm not saying that I find it unpleasant in other people, I just I find it unpleasant for myself to do that. I prefer to try and give something a bit more interesting. So I can't play it live because I'm not a very good musician, okay? In the sense that everything that I play, you know, I'll sort of use perhaps one thirty second of, you know, of everything I play, most of which is rubbish, and I have terrible timing, terrible coordination, and it's sort of, you know, it takes a while for me to actually play something that I like. So it's impossible, that's impossible to do, I say. So I was sent off DJing all over the world, which was, you know, a wonderful experience and lots of fun, but it does start making you sort of slightly ego-heavy in the sense of, Playing records to 3,000 people and they're all going, yeah, like this, you know, and it seems like the DJ's the greatest guy in the world and all the rest of it. And after a while I found that really tiresome, and I thought this is a fake situation, you know, that's not actually what really what I'm after, and I wanted to sort of climb away a bit from all of that side and go back to sort of working in the studio and being a normal human being. You were just mentioning that when, that when you started out and made your first record, that you come back from Italy. And I wanted to kind of go back to that and, okay. kind of, and ask a little bit about yep. where you started out. Uh, reading through your biography, it seems yeah. like you've lived in quite a few places. Yeah. When I was 19, I was living in a squat in King's Cross, and things were getting very depressing. I decided to go to California because I had a friend of a friend in LA, who said that I could stay with them for a couple of days. <laughs> and then after being in LA, I wanted to see more of America, so I decided that I'd hitchhike to Seattle. We were driving over the Bay Bridge in San Francisco, and it just looked fantastic. So I sort of, uh, I'd never bothered going to Seattle, actually. I just stayed in San Francisco for a couple of years, so it was, uh, it was a wonderful city. Yeah. Really great. And I bought a saxophone there in a pawn shop, and I was living in a, this weird sort of hostel for a while. Was your birth as a musician in those years in San Francisco? Yeah, I guess so. We were, yeah, 
where I was always living in these warehouses with other with other people who were making music. So we were using synthesizers and tape loops, and we'd have you know we'd have tape loops 50 feet long that would be going around broom handles around the <laughs> rub, you know. And this was all before MIDI, so there was yeah. you know you couldn't really. It was all experiment, you know, lots of experimentation. And I made a whole load of instruments now electrifying the transducers and there was a lot of early industrial music going on which I was quite into. So from San Francisco? I then yeah drove to New York, um, stayed in New York for oh, I don't know about six or seven months. Then I, my grandmother died and had left me in her will £7,000 and I thought well I'll go back to England, I'll spend all that on some studio equipment, yeah. which is what I did. At that point, were you kind of on a road to becoming a full-time musician? It was something that I was doing to entertain myself, and I really enjoyed doing it. And I knew that I had to make things, if you see what I mean. If yeah. I wasn't going to make music, I'd have to make something. Yeah. And um, and so because of being involved in this experimental music and sort of early synths and da-da-da, I just thought, right, I wanted to, you know. So, Came back to England, set up the studio, didn't like England at all again. Moved, then I moved to Berlin, lived in Berlin for a few months, and then eventually I moved to Italy. Um, I, I, in 1984, I moved to Italy. And I went there without the studio, and came back, got the studio, and set it up as a business for doing a commercial recording okay. studio in Italy, and ran it like that for a bit. And then got bored of making shit for shit. Um, you know, sort of doing, uh, you know, you can imagine sort of, you know, what you have to do in a commercial studio like that. To remain there and be independent, I obviously had to earn a living and do something that, you know, that I was vaguely interested in. Yeah. And then a friend of mine in London, he was at loose end, and I said, Kia, come out to Rome. It's fucking great. <laughs> I said, I've got tons of work, it's a living for you. And so he came out, and just as he came out, uh, a situation, a political situation in Italy called Tangentopoli happened, which was basically where the judges, the judiciary, started cracking down on a lot of corruption within the state. And suddenly the top guys of all these companies were put in prison. And one of the companies that I was earning a living from, making these uh, CD ROMs every month, went to prison. And uh, nobody else in the company could make any decisions, so everything was just put on hold. So we were left with no, no money. Keir saying, you know, I've, come, I've just moved all the way here. What are you saying? There's no, there's yeah. no jobs, you know? So I said, well, let's make music, you know? And so we started making music together. And then we, Keir found out that there was a new label starting up in England called Ninja Gym. Yeah. And he said, let's send it to them. And we'd send off, I don't know, we'd send, we spent, had one day we spent, we sent a tape to Eight Ball in New York. And one, I think one's an Institute. Yeah. And Abel never bothered replying. Institute said, "Okay, we like the shit." Those were the early days at Ninja. Yeah. Well, we were we were living in Rome, talking to Peter on the telephone. So we didn't meet. You know, it was quite a long time before we eventually sort of met. Yeah. He made we we'd done a couple of tracks, and they wanted to put them on a compilation. Then they changed their mind and said, "Would you do an album?" So we said, "Yeah, great." And so we did this album. And we didn't meet Peter until we'd come back to England to master it and sort of give it to him yeah. and meet him, you know. And he was working in this, I mean, it was sort of like one grey 
he was working in a cupboard under the stairs. <laughs> and he literally had a grey filing cabinet in this weird building. And then they moved there and it sort of got a lot better and they moved into Click Street. And, you yeah. know, things really started working and it was great. And Click Street was a lovely building because there were a lot of different people in there doing different things, but it was great interconnectivity of people through the building. So, you know, that was really, it was really fun. London in the 90s, I, I thought was great, really enjoyable. So and that's how you've got your kind of your Ninja Tune grandee status now. Well, I don't know. If, I don't know how grandee it is. Certainly, the, the impression I get is that you've um, you're seen as being kind of a progenitor of the the, the Ninja Tune sound and one of the almost like founding father of what became the Ninja Tune sound. Well, I don't know. I think that Matt and John had really done that already with all right. of their with that series of DJ tools. Really, that to me was that was the basis of it. Yeah. In a funny way, those records because. Everybody else who joined Interesting was free to plunder those records <laughs> for the loops. <laughs> Which we all did. Yeah. Well, it seemed, it seemed like a logical time to talk yeah. about your choices. The first one that you sent over was Thank God for the Rain. Uh, yeah, Bernard, Bernard Herman, who uh, didn't consider, he didn't consider himself uh, just somebody who, I mean, he was a serious composer. And, uh, but he was also brilliant at writing film scores. And he wrote the music for Citizen Kane, he, and then Hitchcock used it time and time again. And he was very, he was very clever. He uses a technique in all of his music where he'll, it's got a name in musical terms, it's gone out of my head at the moment, but he, he, for both themes, he'll always play it twice. And when you're watching a film, this is a perfect thing to do because it it gives the it means that you can play a, you can actually have a very complicated score, but as long as you introduce everything twice, the audience feels as though they know where they are, with yeah. it. and they know that when they hear something new, it'll most probably happen twice. And it's quite an odd thing psychologically, but he was a very clever man. The next one, I'll admit, I've never heard it before, is um, Black John. Yeah, well this is from uh, what's called Quayla music, and it was from the um, uh, South Africa in the late 50s. Uh, coming out of the townships was the, the cheapest instrument bar was Tin Whistle. So you had these guys who played Tin Whistle like it's the most fucking expensive instrument in the world. They're brilliant. Right. And because they've only got this one instrument to concentrate on, and boy, do they know how to play! It makes me always makes me feel very optimistic about life. Okay. Well, let's hear some of it now. Um, so this is uh, Black John by Peter McCann. That was um, a section of Black John by Peter McConnell. 
still here with uh, Funky Porcini, uh, talking about some of his favourites. And now the next one is um, When Johnny Comes Marching Home. Which is a horrible tune. I mean, I hate the actual tune. But this is played by a guy called Don Patterson, who was like a bebop organ player. The best, I mean, in my mind. And what I love about this record is the incredibly groovy little riffs that he gets into it, into the timing. And some of them are... I mean, I thought, oh my god, you know, that's so But of course, it's, it's not really worse off because it's much better in its original context. So that was Don Patterson with When Johnny Comes Marching Home, um, another of Funky Porcini selections. Uh, your next choice is um, is another uh, well, it's, a, it's another oldie, um, and it's uh, Slim's Jam by Slim yeah. Slam. I had a friend who used to run a theatre in Northern Ireland, and they came and played in their dotage, and Pinto um, uh, was doing the lights, and he was looking for them everywhere. He was running around the theatre, and eventually he opened up this door, and out came this huge waft of skunk smoke. <laughs> and, he, and he was, shut the door, man, what you doing? <laughs> Come on in. And so he was, yeah, he met them, met them, and it, was, it must have been, I was rather envious. Yeah. And um, so one played the double bass, and the other guy sang, but copied the double bass. So they made this very original sound. And they had their, had their, all their own language that they constantly used. Like they'd uh, Rudy Tooty, they'd just stick Ooty onto, onto, onto all these names. And uh, yeah, they had their, 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 whole, their whole sort of own language, which they just made up the whole time, which was really funny. But I love this record because it's, uh, it makes it cheers me. Well, we better hear some of it. So this is uh, Slim's Jam by Slim and Slam. Double order, Ritty Booties with a little 
hot sauce on it. That'll just about fix it. Oh, here's it. Well, look at Charlie Yardbird or Rooney. Hey, that was um, a bit of Slim's jam from Slim and Slam I hope you enjoyed that too and finally it's something quite different it's um, yeah. Messier. Messier. Yeah, the Bongo Celeste, which is one of the first pieces of music that he wrote in about 1922, I think. It's an incredibly simple piece, but it's it it was really instructive to me this piece because it's um, it it hovers around the resolve in the music, mm -hmm. so that you think the resolve is happening. And in fact, you never hear it, but because they go round, because he goes round the resolve so much, you come away completely satisfied <laughs> as though you have heard it. And I think that this is this represents a really important thing in music, but it's really important to leave room for your brain to make up the missing parts. And in fact, when you listen to any great tune that you think, that you whistle, if you whistle the tune, it's never actually played like that. There are always bits missing, or slightly off, right. or something. That, so that your brain actually has to work to fill in the missing bits. And when music doesn't do that, it sounds shit. And it, that's what makes commercial, really commercial music sound awful. It's because it, never, it doesn't do that. And you can listen to another, I mean, tunes, the pop tunes that have, have made, that, that are incredible. And this, was, this is a piece that I think really does it. Well, I love it. It's a very, he was, uh, I mean, most people would know that he, uh, taught a lot of really great people too um, and he was actually a sort of uh, he had this great belief in uh, sort of a kind of mysticism in Catholicism right? and but he was uh, he loved writing mi mystical music I think really and that and I think he's brilliant and so this is uh, this is a piece that as I say, sort of climbs up and you're waiting for this result and it's just, but it seems to fulfill you like an amazing man. So I love this music. This is a, yeah, uh, Le Bonque Celeste by Messiah. Uh, Le Bonquette Celeste by Messiaen, uh, and that was the final choice of uh, Funky Porcini in the Ninja Tune podcast. Um, so we're kind of coming to a close. Um, I've just got a couple more questions that I wanted to ask. Yeah. Firstly, you've said that there's definitely not going to be a wait as long for the next Funky Porcini. No. Album. Have you got something up your sleeve? Yeah, I'm working on a show at the moment. 
I'm working on a sort of film and fil uh, well, I don't want to do clump. I don't really want to go into clumps anymore. I want mm -hmm. to go into different spaces with music and with visuals and, and do a different thing, different sort of thing. In some situations it's going to be an installation, in some situations it's going to be a film show, and in some situations um, it won't be there at all. No, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. So uh, we'll see. Okay, well, we'll definitely look out for that. Thank you. And the, the new album on which I believe is available from the 4th of May, so it may even be out when this podcast is available, yeah. but make sure you go and listen to it. It's a fantastic, beautiful record. It's interesting and strange and also look back over everything else over the years that, um, that Funky's done on uh, Ninja Tune. Uh, but one last question, I wanted to ask you to give one bit of advice to our listeners. Well, if you make something, don't ever think that because you've heard it 2,000 times that, that it's okay for it to be boring because you've heard it so much. Always make everything interesting for yourself. Fantastic advice. So, thank you very, very much. Not at all. It's, it's been, been great fun. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Okay, hello and welcome back. Um, I suppose I could and should call this part two of the podcast. Um, I'm going to have a quick run through of some of our favourite forthcoming Ninja Tune releases. Um, first up, I've got a track called Bombs Anthem by Infesticons, and this is coming out on Big Dada. So, yeah, um, have a listen to this. Not Biggie, not Jigger Cannibal watch eat your face quicker You can ball bang like the pace of sixes But the pro came, pick up the pace swifter Blows cocaine, lace with liquor Not gonna take it, you twist the sister You a no name, the lame is quitter Too much pain, the picture spit, aim and hit ya Main mister, explain me slicker Creatures crazy, who's same as sicker Got bombs, run up in the White House Told moms, I'll be right out It goes up They dropping bombs Bombs Anthem by Infesticons and coming up next we've got a track from Lawn and this is a track called Cherry Moon so yeah please enjoy this Lord with Cherry Moon. 
up next forthcoming on Ninja Tune Records we've got a track called Door in the Wall by Grasscut one of our real favourite bands does it finish does it end does it ever end what are the chances of it what you wish for coveted pitchforks stuck through the heart through the heart if you stretch can you see can you ever see round dusty corners is it even thinking monitors blinking stuck Tune podcast and coming up next we've got some of a track by uh, Jagger Jazzist and this is called Banan Fleur Over Out and this is the Prince Thomas remix. Jagger Jazzist. That's the Prince Thomas remix and that's coming out on Ninja Tune Records. And finally, uh, we've got our guest from last time on the podcast. Uh, This is a track called Stay the Same uh, by Bonobo.
was Bonobo with Stay the Same on the Ninja Tune podcast. Thanks very much for downloading it and for bothering to stick around and listen. I would love to thank my guest again, James Bradle, also known as Funky Porcini. It was brilliant having him in and really interesting talking to him. I hope you enjoyed the interview and listening to the rest of this particular episode. All that remains is for me to thank you for listening um, and thank Darren Knott for producing. My name's Dexter and I was your host today. Um, so yeah, all that remains to say is hope you tune in again and in the meantime, be well.